Welcome to the Voice of Love, Mystic Poetry for the Yearning Soul. This podcast was created for seekers who find themselves immersed in the rich and mystical world of poetry, poetry that can connect and reunite us with the divine. If you're listening to this right now, you're probably yearning, yearning for what? Something deeper, some sort of a spiritual connection with source, with consciousness. But how does one reunite their yearning soul with the beloved? How does one escape the mundane and often chaotic distractions of daily life that constantly pull us away from our spiritual essence? While there is no right way, people have turned to poetry for centuries to contemplate, express, and imbibe that which has always been difficult to convey, but which has the power to awaken something much deeper inside all of us. Despite its inexplicable ability to connect us with the divine presence, mystical poetry is perhaps not as prevalent or prominent today as it may have been centuries ago when there were arguably less distractions in life. Rewind the clock several centuries to the Sufi poets and philosophers, the Christian mystics, and the Hindu saints, and you will see and hear a rich library of mystic poetry that was being shared with the world during those times and is still read and loved by many today. I can even imagine spiritual masters like Rumi and Hafiz, and even those less familiar to our modern society, wrapping themselves up in a cozy shawl each evening, with candles by their side, and nothing else but the moon to gaze upon and remind them of another world as they pour their endless love into lines and lines of sweet poetry. During each episode, I will share a couple of poems, including one or two of my own, and then provide commentary that is meant to expand one's understanding of the poem's ultimate meaning or as it happens to be, it's layers of meaning. Now that isn't to say that my interpretation is the end-all, be-all, but I hope that it serves as a non-intrusive aid in helping you decipher what these poets, mystics, and philosophers actually meant when they were inscribing these words. All of this will be supplemented by calm 
and relaxing music meant to induce a trance-like and meditative state that can help you go deeper. Now with that introduction, let's step away from our daily life and step into 10th century Persia to meet our first poet, Abu Sa'id Abul Khair. Abu Sa'id Abul Khair was a famous Persian Sufi and poet who lived during the 10th and 11th century mostly in the city of Naishapur, located in modern-day Iran, home to several other famous poets, like Atar, who frequently referenced Abu Khair and even mentioned him as his spiritual guide, despite being born nearly a century after his death. Abu Khair was widely popular during his time, and his fame spread throughout the Islamic Empire, which for centuries carried the torch for philosophy, literature, and poetry at a time when Europe was culturally in the Dark Ages. Abu Khair is believed to be the first Sufi writer to commonly use ordinary love poems to express a connection with the divine, or as is commonly known in Sufi poetry, the beloved. Despite receiving a formal education that included Islamic scholarship and Arabic literature, he left all of it behind for Sufism. His teachings focused on liberating oneself from the notion of self, from the notion of I or ego, which he deemed to be the one and only cause of separation from God and the cause of all personal and social misfortunes. Even though recent research has discredited a lot of poems previously attributed to him. He is said to have loved poetry very much, so much so that even his final words were not verses of the Quran, but rather the following poem. What's sweeter than this in the world? Friend met friend and the lover joined his beloved. That was all sorrow, this is all joy, 
those were all words. This is all reality. Let us now immerse ourselves into one of his masterpieces, Love Came. Love came, flowed like blood, beneath skin through veins, emptied me of myself, filled me with the beloved, till every limb, every organ was seized and occupied, till only my name remains, the rest is it. Notice the gentle but harmonic rhythm that Abu Khair employed in this poem. Love here is the symbol of divinity itself, and its arrival and effect on the mystic is nothing short of complete transformation. One is no longer me, there is no longer an I, there is simply the one only annihilating one's false or lowest self, the ego, can one ultimately reveal one's true self, consciousness. I especially love the symbolic imagery in this poem. The body, or what can be seen with the naked eye, is the superficial, the form, the transitory. Whereas what is underneath the body, the blood, and more aptly, the soul, is the real, the formless, the eternal. The analogy to blood signifies just how critical reuniting with God is for our existence. Like blood, we cannot exist, at least spiritually, without a connection with the divine. In fact, when we are most disconnected from our spiritual and actual self, we feel most lost, unhappy, and confused. It is divine love and our continuous connection with it that makes life worth living. But this love does not appear until we consciously remove ourselves from our busy lives and minds to notice and experience it. You can see here that Abu Khair even makes reference to this by saying that it is beneath skin or not seen by the naked eye, not found in our ordinary day-to-day -day life. We must slow down, tap into our soul, and listen to the heartbeat that is thumping through our entire body to feel the rush of love connecting us with the beloved. 
Once we empty out our false self, as Abu Khair writes, we create room for the real self, for love eternal. It is similar to going on a hike with a full backpack. We can't pack anything more until we empty out what is already inside. Only by emptying out the inner baggage can we ever diminish our mental and emotional burdens and make any real progress on our spiritual journey. This type of love is no ordinary love. It's not romantic, familial, or platonic. It has no needs or wants. There is not even a sense of I in this relationship. Only union with the beloved. And with this union, we feel every limb and every organ seized and occupied. We change entirely. We are no longer the same person we were when we started this journey. And there is a deep feeling of surrender, a feeling of letting go, and not trying to seek, but rather letting the universal wisdom naturally unfold. Finally, we see that there is nothing left following love's arrival, except for a name. No real identity anymore. Simply a label. Our names are not an actual identity. They point to who we are, but they are not actually who we are. They are like a signpost on a trail, not the trail itself, nor even the view at the end of the trail. Labels in and of themselves are meaningless and obscure the true reality of our existence. Be they our name, religion, nationality, gender, political ideology, and so on. Once we let love empty us of ourselves, we strip the layers of clothing that is our false self and stand bare in the truth of our existence, becoming one with the beloved. One soul, who probably knew this experience of union more than most people, is one of my favorite poets, Khwaja Shamsuddin Muhammad Hafiz Shirazi, or known to most of the world simply as Hafiz.
Hafiz was a 14th century Persian Sufi poet, mystic, and philosopher whose works are often regarded as the pinnacle of Persian literature. He wrote mostly ghazals, or lyric poetry that expresses divine love and the ecstasy derived from it. I have found many of his poems to be incredibly deep, layered, and complex, even to the most trained readers and interpreters. Although he memorized the Quran at an early age, earning him the title Hafiz, which means memorizer, Hafiz was known to have often poked fun at and exposed the hypocrisy of the traditional religious establishment and the intellectual community. Not much is known about Hafiz's life, despite his immense popularity, especially in the Persian world. One legend describes a young Hafiz working in a bakery, delivering bread to a wealthy part of Shiraz, where he was born and raised. There, he saw a woman of incredible beauty who inspired some of his early love poems. But after realizing that his love would not be requited, he allegedly held his first mystic vigil to realize this union. He then came across a being of even greater beauty who identified themselves as an angel. And from there, this yearning for union became mystical and symbolic of a spiritual union with the divine. But even though this mercurial character escapes our imagination, his legacy has blossomed not only through the ages, but around the world. He inspired famous Western writers like Thoreau, William B. Yeats, Goethe, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who described him as the poet's poet. His magnum opus, Divani Hafiz, was often read by Rabindranath Tagore's father and even the accomplished polymath himself. But all these praises can't even compare to a speck of sand when juxtaposed against the entire desert that is Hafiz's beloved.
as he is believed to have said, Love has befriended me so completely, it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. There is no concept. There is no Hafiz anymore. Simply the Beloved. And what a way to observe this than to delve into one of his gems, the pearl on the ocean floor. We have turned the face of our dawn studies toward the drunkard's road. The harvest of our prayers we've turned toward the granary of the ecstatic soul. The fire toward which we have turned our face is so intense, it would set fire to the straw harvest of a hundred reasonable men. The Sultan of Pre-Eternity gave us the casket of love's grief as a gift. Therefore, we have turned our sorrow toward this dilapidated traveler's cabin that we call the world. From now on, I will leave no doors in my heart open for love of beautiful creatures. I have turned and set the seal of divine lips on the door of this house. It's time to turn away from make-believe under our robes packed so many times. The foundation for our work is an intelligence that sees through all these games. We have turned our face to the prole lying on the ocean floor. So why then should we worry if this wobbly old boat keeps going or not? We turn to the intellectuals and call them parasites of reason. Thank God they are like true lovers, faithless and without heart. The Sufis have settled for a fantasy, and Hafiz is no different. How far out of reach our goals, and how weak our wills are. A poem like this certainly requires multiple reads to understand, as there are a lot of symbols that illustrate difficult and sometimes highly intellectualized concepts.
Nevertheless, we will do our best to submerge into this ocean and dive deep beneath the surface to find the tiny pearl, the ultimate truth or essence buried in the ocean floor. One common theme is the concept of the face, which represents our perspective. Whichever way our face is turned is what perspective we have in that moment. For example, if you are admiring a valley from the cliff on which you are standing, you probably don't notice the parking lot behind you. But if you turn your body and thus turn your face, you can see a whole new view, a whole new perspective. Closely related to this is the notion of turning, which is mentioned in one verb form or another eight times throughout the poem. This symbolizes the act of shifting from one perspective to another, presumably one that is better or wiser. With that code deciphered, it becomes easy to uncover what is ultimately being said. In other words, I used to think, act, and live in one way. Now I have grown and realized the ultimate truth. For example, take a close look at the first two lines. We have turned the face of our dawn studies toward the Trunkard's road. The harvest of our prayers we've turned toward the granary of the ecstatic soul. Dawn studies could possibly refer to religious rituals, such as prayer, the recitation of holy scripture, chants or meditations practiced by devotees at the crack of dawn which is often seen as a time of deep connection with God when the rest of the world is still asleep. It's clear in this poem that Hafiz favors the more spiritually liberating, less rigid, and more ecstatic interpretation of Islam, that is, the drunkard's road, rather than the traditional form practiced and preached by the religious elite during his time. Perhaps he too may have once been one of those fervent religious devotees who would wake up each morning before sunrise and pour himself into the dawn studies. But there is clearly a shift to the mystic's road with the symbols of wine representing divine love and the symbol of drunkard representing the mystic who is yearning to reunite with God. The contrast between the religious and spiritual, between orthodox and mystical, only intensifies as the poem continues. Rather than praying or hoping for some sort of spiritual salvation, or the harvest, the Sufi has turned toward the vast and immense treasure house or granary 
that is divine love. Rather than praying to enter heaven in the afterlife, the Sufi is experiencing it now in the present moment. Said differently, Hafiz is telling us, why settle for perishable crops on the field when you already have a whole granary that can feed and sustain you with very little work at all? The food here, of course, being divine nourishment. The next two lines paint a more stark divide between the Sufi and the traditional religious establishment. The fire toward which we have turned our face is so intense, it would set fire to the straw harvest of a hundred reasonable men. The fire that Hafiz mentions could very well symbolize the face or presence of God. In the Bible, for example, we learn that God reveals himself to Moses in the form of fire. Hafiz is saying that this love or presence of God is so intense that it can destroy the plots and arguments, or the straw harvests, of reasonable men, or men with reason, intellectuals. These intellectuals will read and study for eternity to become more knowledgeable, thinking that this alone will bring them closer to God. But they don't have any real experience of God. They only elevate their false sense of self, their egos. Rather than destroy those egos, to see the entire universe as a giant mirror reflecting the one true essence. And in their pursuit of knowledge, they become more arrogant with everything they learn, strengthening their egos with clever arguments and reasoning, but possessing little wisdom, intuition, and most importantly, love. As one of Hafiz's spiritual influences, Rumi eloquently instructs, sell your cleverness and purchase bewilderment. The Sufis have sold everything they've owned to empty themselves and be filled with divine love. Then we get into an absolute gem of a line. The Sultan of Pre-Eternity gave us the casket of love's grief as a gift. Therefore, we have turned our sorrow toward this dilapidated traveler's cabin that we call the world. There are so many metaphors in just this one line that it could be easy to miss the overall meaning. The Sultan of Pre-Eternity is obviously God. The casket of love's grief can be interpreted as the mental, emotional, and spiritual pain of being separated from the divine at birth. The gift may sound paradoxical at first, as who would ever want to suffer in this world? But as with most things in the mystic tradition, one thing cannot exist without its polar opposite. 
Light cannot exist without darkness. The sky cannot exist without the earth. Peace cannot exist without war or suffering. And so, while separation from God is arguably the most painful feeling we experience during our human existence and the core of all sufferings, it is through separation alone that we realize our distance and ultimately yearn to be reunited. The sorrow that we once had begins to appear so small when we realize that this world is not our ultimate destination, but merely a stopping point, a traveler's cabin that we visit for a few days before our soul passes on and reunites with Source. This cabin, which at an even deeper level can symbolize the mortal body and egoic self, is in ruins. It's dilapidated. So why make this our final stop? Why spend so much effort to be someone or make something of ourselves in this world when all we're doing is feeding a deteriorating sense of self? These are the questions that Hafiz forces us to ask, and he's not done describing this world just yet. From now on, I will leave no doors in my heart open for love of beautiful creatures. I have turned and set the seal of divine lips on the door of this house. Before we set our sights on union with the beloved, we get distracted by beautiful creatures. This could be interpreted as anything that we strive for, since anything that we seek is almost always portrayed as beautiful, desirable, and worth having from the perspective of our rose-colored glasses. This could be a partner, a job, a house, or even a level of spiritual understanding virtually anything or anyone that we believe will enhance our sense of self, our identity, our reason for living. But all these people and things are merely a mirror reflecting what we truly seek, spiritual reunion. Instead of vying for the creations, why not vie for the creator? Why not leave every desire behind to have it all by being with all? This is what Hafiz seems to suggest when he mentions that the Sufi is turning away from and forsaking or setting the seal of divine lips on this world and mortal body. Here she is closing all the doors, another powerful symbol connected to the past and the former way of living and suffering. And after spending half the poem casting light on this poignant issue, Hafiz compels us to take action and in essence wake up from the unaware existence we are living. It's time to turn away from make-believe 
under our robes packed so many times. The foundation for our work is an intelligence that sees through all these games. The life we're living is an illusion. It's make-believe. Nothing has any real significance or lasting value. Every good thing disappears or fades with time. And rather than accept this sobering reality, we often unconsciously try to defy reality by pursuing the next great thing. When we get tired of one car, we buy a new one. When we experience a painful divorce, we yearn a new relationship. Always seeking to fill a void, to cure the pangs of separation that never seem to be fully cured, only bandaged for a short while. And so we always cover up the real issue that is bothering us with distractions, with new things to pursue, with robes packed so many times that we forget and remain unaware of what really lies at the heart of our suffering. The more clothes we put on, metaphorically, the more we lose connection with our naked body or soul. And I think that is what Hafiz is trying to hammer home in these lines. Everything we're in unconscious pursuit of, in order to feed the needs of our little or false self, is nothing but a game. God, the intelligence, is present at all these games, giving us a mind and body to carry them out if we wish, but always waiting for us to wake up and realize that our unconscious pursuits and desires in life are just a game and not true reality. He is the foundation behind everything we do and everything we are. But we are busy erecting skyscrapers in the image of our ego that hover above the clouds but are ready to tip over at any slight shake. But now is the time to dive deep within, to submerge inward and find what it is that we have been truly seeking. We have turned our face to the pearl lying on the ocean floor. So why then should we worry if this wobbly old boat keeps going or not? And what we've been seeking is a pearl on the ocean floor. I love how Hafiz flips this notion of enlightenment or awakening on its head. Instead of describing the state of bliss as a vast and massive force, power, or object, he compares it to a pearl, an item of seemingly little significance or monetary worth, yet brimming with humble beauty. Trapped in a rough and unwelcoming shell, the pearl or truth will appear before anyone who is willing to exert any sincere effort and attention toward opening the shell, that is, toward opening one's inner wounds and baggage in order to grow from them. But to get to this pearl on the ocean floor, we must dive down the entire ocean of our being. The actual journey of reuniting with the Beloved, 
of awakening is the ultimate destination, reunion. Another paradox to contemplate, but one with the power to induce sheer amazement when you contemplate that the life we actually crave is the life inside us, in the ocean of our being, rather than outside us on the surface in our daily life. Therefore, why worry about what goes on in the surface? Why worry about all the superficial and external day-to-day struggles when this life is just a wobbly old boat? The real truth or essence, the pearl, is what lies beneath the surface. But who is ready to step off the boat and dive within? Finally, we turn to the penultimate lines of the poem, which again seem to poke fun at the religious elite and intellectuals, although more prominently than before. We turn to the intellectuals and call them parasites of reason. Thank God they are like true lovers, faithless and without heart. Parasite is an interesting word to describe these intellectuals. That's because a parasite, by definition, lives off of someone or something else at that person or thing's expense. They don't really have a life of their own without the nutrients or benefits of the host. And so, by describing the intellectuals as parasites of reason, Hafiz is once again highlighting the futility of trying to seek endless knowledge by reading every book, memorizing every verse, and practicing religious rituals without any love or sincerity. Instead of using the fallible intellect which gives way to reason, Hafiz is calling us to tap into a much deeper awareness and source of wisdom. Relying on reason alone only inflates the ego, since defeating your opponent in a debate only strengthens your pride, while losing an argument only strengthens your bitterness and envy. This is why, Hafiz remarks, the intellectual is like a lover that is faithless and without heart. They go through the motions, but without any real sincerity. And by doing so, they don't really have faith or a faith. They are faithless, which is spectacular wordplay by Hafiz, something many of his poems are known for. And to wrap up the contrasting ways of life and schools of thought, Hafiz summarizes the entire crux of what the Sufis, the seeker, are ultimately after. The Sufis have settled for a fantasy, and Hafiz is no different. How far out of reach our goals, and how weak our wills are. Divine love and the ecstasy that is gained from it does appear like a fantasy to the uninitiated. It is even forgivable to dismiss this devotion toward 
and pursuit of union as nonsensical, crazy, and even foolish. But these are only labels constructed by our fallible mind, and more precisely, our insecure ego, who is afraid of relinquishing its control over us as we free ourselves in union with the egoless divine presence. If the unconscious and unaware existence that we live is considered to be reality, then it is better to live in fantasy than to accept this reality. That is what Hafiz is seemingly implying. He also goes a step further to reference that he, in fact, has become one with the Beloved. By referring to himself in the third person, Hafiz is not inflating his sense of ego. He's diminishing it. He has become so consumed by love that in the words of Abu Sa'id Abul Khair, love has emptied him of himself and filled him with the beloved till only a name remains. This mystic has sold everything, pride, reputation, status, possessions, knowledge, and all that is left is a name, Hafiz. This last line is perhaps the most difficult to decipher as it could refer to either the Sufis in love with their beloved or to humanity in general. Perhaps the latter makes more sense as it would mean that in the control of the ego, we will never truly accomplish anything because every accomplishment would eclipse the previous one such that we never stop pursuing. Further, it could mean that if we are not yearning to awaken and raise our consciousness, that we have not yet reclaimed our authority over our ego, nor have we mastered our sense of self. By saying that our wills are weak, Hafiz is perhaps referring to all humans who, regardless of their level of spiritual attainment, still find themselves susceptible to the ego's games. Only when we elevate ourselves to the level of the beloved and recognize our ultimate nature as such, will we ever be able to see through all these games. We now return to the present day, but hopefully with our souls still connected to that inner world. That eerie and mysterious world that is both foreign and familiar to us. The final poem that I will be sharing is one of my own, and the first that I composed when I began what I like to call my spiritual awakening journey. Some voice within seized and occupied every organ of mine back in May. And the result of this surreal and mystic experience was this poem titled, This World. Let's have a listen. There is this world where only light exists, where only waves surrender 
where only one finds true bliss. Deeper you go, till depth means nothing. What you seek is what you are, and that is something. Oceans upon oceans you love to travel, not realizing the greatest mysteries inside, waiting to be unraveled. But if you do yearn to make this shift, step into this world now and rise like mist. When you read this poem, you can't help but feel as if you are drifting, as if you are letting go of this material world and rising into the ether. I love the image of white light and often encounter it when meditating or when I'm deep in contemplation. It evokes an immense vastness that can't be captured in words or images but only felt by the heart. Similarly, the concept of wave surrendering instills a feeling of surrender within. When we think of waves, we think of violent crests of water crashing onto the shore and sucking all things in. But when you think of waves surrendering, you can't help but feel a deep sense of calm as if all the noise of the world becomes silent, and silence is the true master of all sounds. Only when we silence our mind, when we silence our ego, will we discover inner peace or true and lasting bliss. But we are often lured into the pursuit of things. We pursue possessions, titles, knowledge, status, all in a fruitless endeavor to enhance our sense of self the sense of self that we identify as the ego. Even the spiritual wisdom that we seek can be a form of pursuit, as mentioned earlier, contradicting the truth that everything we want and want to be, we already have and already are. This is the inspiration for the lines, deeper you go till depth means nothing. What you seek is what you are, and that is something. We often think of our spiritual journey as ascending a ladder, that at some point in the future, we will have attained enlightenment, awakening, or nirvana. But becoming enlightened isn't so much a function of attaining, but rather a function of surrendering, of removing the veil that is our false self and seeing the world as one. There is an energy field connecting the entire universe. We are all part of one tapestry, 
And if one piece of that fabric is destroyed, the entire tapestry is ruined. And so we travel oceans upon oceans. We strive to go somewhere, to become someone, to do something. But all this time, what we've been seeking is not out there in the physical plane, but rather in here, in us, on the spiritual plane. The physical dimension is just a mirror of the spiritual dimension. Look inward and you will find the real journey you are traveling in life. As the famous quote goes, you are not a human being living a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being living a human experience. And if these words resonate with you, forget the outward journey and embrace the inner one. Forget all that you think is solid and stable and rise like mist. For no matter what we perceive to be stable, nothing truly is. Not our family, our career, our health, not even ourself. Boil the water that you are and become one with the air surrounding you. Perhaps then, you might come to know who you really are. Love itself. And just like that, we conclude the very first episode of The Voice of Love. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and found it to be nourishing, insightful, and uplifting. The journey, however, doesn't stop here. It continues with your daily life and how you choose to explore the inner dimensions of your being each and every day with every passing hour. One of my favorite quotes from Abu Sa'id Abu Khair reminds me of this. He said, The perfect mystic is not an ecstatic devotee lost in contemplation of oneness, nor a saintly recluse shunning all commerce with mankind. But the true saint goes in and out amongst the people, and eats and sleeps with them, and buys and sells in the market, and marries, and takes part in social intercourse, and never forgets God for a single moment. It's not so much about withdrawing from daily life to travel on your spiritual journey. Your life is the journey, as long as you are present, aware, and open for love to empty you and fill you with the beloved. So thank you again for listening. Don't forget to check out my website and blog at www www.najeemmastamand.com for more poems, commentaries, and episodes. But for now, I wish you the eternal peace and love that you already are.